Get ready to rock radio. I'm determined, I think, to at least start a project this year. Um, the last record that I put out, I think it was about four years between Liars and, um, and Arena. Three or four years. And that's probably the outside. That's probably as long as I should take. I should probably get music created a little quicker than that. <laughs> and um, part of the slowdown is due to me just, you know, after you've written so much music, you kind of, it takes you a little while to get around to something that seems like a, a new and interesting um, tack on everything. So I already have that part of it. I think it didn't take me as long to decide what I wanted to um, I wanted to write about and the form that I want to write in. But um, I don't expect to get more than just started on it this year. I don't expect that I'll finish anything this year. But um, part of my uh, my grand plan is is just to keep the hellhounds off my trail and keep working. And, you know, as a musician, is a hard enough thing, you know, in in, um, in healthy times. And so these economic times, you've got to um, work a little bit harder, go a little bit further. And I plan on continuing. I mean, this time of the year, we're, we're talking now in January and the start of a new decade. And I know we, we tend to be reflective on what's gone on in the past and looking forward to the future. You've mentioned just briefly about um, trying to get into a new album project this year, if you can. Now, looking back, Todd, over the last decade, what would you say have been the highlights for you in, in musical terms and perhaps even personally? You know, what have been the achievements for you? Uh, what what worked well, and you know the, the usual thing. What didn't perhaps work so well for you? From a um, from a decade standpoint, mm. um, it hasn't been such a bad decade. The uh, high point, I suppose, was the uh, new found attention that uh, the Liars album um, brought to me, which was pretty much unexpected you know I figured that I'm go I would be going through a uh, this normal sort of period of artistic doldrums that almost any artist who you know who uh, lasts long enough <laughs> is going to have to go through it's like you know uh, let's say the uh, uh, the 60s 70s and 80s for uh, Tony Bennett, mm. you know, <laughs> he became, you know, the kind of style of music, he was popular when the style of music that he performed was popular in like the 50s and into the early 60s. Then that music was not, you know, the kids didn't listen to that music anymore. And so you didn't hear much about Tony Bennett. He just soldiered on doing whatever he did. Then years and years later, when that style of music got, when people started to get interested in that again, through other artists like Michael Bublé or the rediscovering of Sinatra by a lounge-conscious youth, you know, and things like that, you know, when Frank Sinatra got rediscovered, so did Tony Bennett, and now Tony Bennett has a healthy career again. And so I figured that that's, would, that's kind of like the arc of what my life would be like. I'd have to find other things to do or just constantly tour under the radar in order to survive as a musician until suddenly people rediscovered 
the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> and my price tag suddenly shoots through the roof. <laughs> um, it happened a little bit earlier than that, and it wasn't um, a product of any sort of musical nostalgia. I just... I decided that I wanted to do a record that was based around a concept in the way that I used to make records. Almost all of my records would have some overarching concept. And um, as it turned out, it hit a um, it hit a resonant chord with some significant, first of all, some significant part of the critical world. And that, you know, even though I've been putting out records for years and years, nobody was even reviewing them. And then suddenly I'm getting all of this additional kind of attention in a good way. That brought the opportunity, you know, to do a, a more uh, elaborate production, something a little bit more memorable for, for the fans than just um, going out and playing the music. And the whole Liars tour, I guess, fired up a, a new audience in a way. And um, and that's also given me the opportunity to, to tour a little bit more. Uh, at the same time, you know, I've had my disappointment. There was the fact that I couldn't actually literally afford to continue to tour if I'm liars. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it was a band and a production, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, once the ticket price drops below a certain threshold, you really can't afford to do it anymore. And um, that's what eventually happened. And I went back to doing the uh, doing solo shows and did a and actually toured more of England than I had in recent years, but uh, as a double bill with Joe Jackson. And what I discovered during the course of that was that I, you know, the solo show that I had kept in my back pocket had grown completely stale and obsolete. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't do that anymore. Uh, Most of it was a product of the fact that I wasn't continuing to write the kind of material that worked for me to, you know, worked in a solo context. Everything, the production levels were all a little bit bigger, and none of it sounded right when I would um, attempt to play it on just one guitar or one piano. So I'd essentially written myself out of the solo shows. And, um, mm. but, and they worked so well in the States, haven't they? You know, uh, previously. I remember you telling me that several years ago, actually, that, um, you know, you, yes, you might have been a bit under the radar in, in a lot of people's minds, but you were doing these solo shows, weren't you? Uh, well, see, that's, you know, and eventually, you know, if uh, depending on what happens with, you know, the market and my personal um, um, value in it, that's what you go back to. You go back, you just scale back down again. Fortunately, I've got enough of an audience, and depending on the kind of show that I'm doing, you know, there's enough of a residual audience that if the venues become small and the ticket prices become high, I can still sell those. And then, you know, in the case of a Wizard of True Star, well, I guess the ticket price is high for that because it's an event. But... Um, you know, for more conventional touring, you know, you want to play larger places for, um, you know, maybe a little less extravagant ticket price. So I'm prepared to do that as well. You know, the music business being the shambles it is, you have to go back to what musicians have always done, which is, you know, get into your troubadour outfit and go out <laughs> with your hat in hand. Yes. You know, and just play anywhere that anyone will listen. Get ready to rock radio. Because, of course, we saw you several years ago. You mentioned the Joe Jackson double bill thing. 
Um, and I think we spoke just before that tour, but um, I'm not so sure whether that worked in the sense, I think I probably told you that at the time, that, you know, obviously there was a, a good body of people in the audience, in fact, probably most of them, to be truthful, Todd, who came to see you. And you always feel a bit frustrated because obviously it was a joint bill, wasn't it? So you don't get the full set, really. Well, um, there, is a, there is a certain challenge in those kinds of shows and you know we didn't necessarily think we didn't sit down and say okay what would be the ideal um, double bill and um, put together the um, put together a tour based around that um, there there was certainly mutual admiration and that made it interesting for both Joe and I to do in the first place yes but in terms of our you know whether there was any uh, so a crossover, really, isn't it? Congruence in our That was a completely different question. We undertook the tour actually based on the response to a single show that we did in New York, um, the, uh, the New York Shakespeare Festival, also known as the Public Theater. Um, I did a revival of a musical I had written for them, and Joe uh, was... Um, Kind and brave enough to take on one of the roles in the in this one night revival. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> he came in and learned a bunch of stuff and sang it great, and um, you know, it was a big plus to the whole show. And we were approached after that by the people who had promoted that um, particular revival about doing a um, just doing one show in uh, a venue called the Delacorte Theater, which is an open, uh, open-air theater in Central Park where they usually do Shakespeare during the summer. But they had a, you know, a concert series that you know, was whenever there wasn't a Shakespeare production, they would put concerts on in the theater, and they said, um, why don't we do one of these later this summer, and we'll add uh, a string quartet, one of these, you know, mo- modern string quartets called Ethel, who would essentially be the opening act, and then it would be me and Joe at the double bill. And the show sold out really quickly, um, because New York is a big enough city that both Joe and I have significant audiences there. And I think that also, you know, our core audiences, both of our core audiences, are somewhat musically sophisticated and interested in that kind of stuff. And the show went out and was great. You know, it was like a huge critical success. It was the most successful show they'd had all summer. And so every immediately everyone started talking about doing a tour with me and Joe and the string quartet, and that's eventually what we did. But as you point out, as we travel around the world, <laughs> there was the yes. diversity, you know, of uh, of audience. Um, commitment. Whereas we would go some places, and yes, a, a significant portion of the audience might be there to see me and be less responsive or whatever to potentially to to Joe. But then we would go other places, like when we played in Germany, which I rarely get to, and everyone was there to see Joe, and nobody was there to see me, and they would sit extremely quietly and politely. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, yeah. Huh. So in the end, it was, you know, we did have on occasions, and probably more often here in the States than we did in Europe, uh, nights when, you know, everything was all, you know, when everything was firing. Yeah. In the audience, you know, Joe was winning my people over and I was winning Joe's people over and, you know, and 
that was great. But that didn't happen dependably enough, I think, for us to continue doing a show like that. Yes. Also, I think that Joe and I both, you know, we do this as a novelty thing, but neither of us enjoys the kind of musical responsibility that's involved when you have to hold everybody's attention completely yourself. And that it, for both of us, it's much more fun to play with a band and to interact off of other musicians as well. Yeah. You know, interacting with the audience. Because I think actually you'd spoiled us really, because you'd already been here with um, the Liars tour, which was was great. Really, it was a great, you know, it's a great album and it was a great show. And more recently, um, we talked. Uh, the last time we talked, it was just before the Arena tour in the UK. Um, I mean, that really, it's fantastic because I did, you know, secretly, um, it's very difficult when you're speaking to someone like yourself and, you know, ahead of a tour, and obviously you want to do the best for that tour, but I always felt deep down that I just want to hear Todd play some guitar. (laughs) You know, and I think other people did because you got that feedback, I think, when you were touring the States. Uh, You were telling me, obviously... The the whole arena thing was an opportunity to do that. And I think I was conscious before I made that record that I wanted to recover um, some of that comfort level. You know, when I was doing the solo shows, I was simply a strummer, (laughs) you know, just scrubbing away and... um, And what happened was, you know, in uh, in the interim... As I toured with a, uh, I was touring with, touring with the Tony Levin band as a quartet, um, and that kind of brought me back to playing more guitar live. So after I, you know, after doing that for a while, I came to the conclusion that I really wanted to um, start writing more guitar-oriented music and doing a little more guitar playing in the next project that I got to, and eventually that was Arena. Get ready to rock radio. Do you think you'll go on in this vein? I mean, I know you, you're someone who surprises us all, really, and you can never pigeonhole Todd Rundgren, but, I mean, it seemed to me a great development, and I always wondered whether perhaps, you know, with everything going on, the songwriting and producing, that maybe you've subjugated your, your guitar playing over the years, and maybe this was a bit of a discovery, a personal discovery, really. Way, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of moving backwards now. Oh, no, that's, that's good, that's good. <laughs> Part of the uh, part of the deal that I made um, for the distribution of Arena involved me recording uh, an album of Robert Johnson songs. Um, the uh, distributor, um, the entity that we made the distribution deal with for Arena, also happened to be administering Robert Johnson's catalog, and they wanted to which is a kind of a smart move in today's uh, scary record (laughs) (laughs) environment, you know, and that they uh, try and exploit more than simply the record. So the idea was to have have, um, versions of Robert Johnson songs, uh, not just a record in which, you know, Robert Johnson publishing would be collected, but also versions of the songs that could be ten- be potentially used for licensing because they apparently were getting a lot of requests for Robert versions of Robert Johnson songs which they didn't have probably these sort of the originals or ones that other artists had recorded and and they could not get um, uh, licenses to so um, when we did the initial uh, 
wizard shows in starting in Akron and going through the Midwest and stuff like that, the opening act was a, a variation of Utopia. We called it Notopia because it technically was not Utopia, but, it, but since Roger Powell was in the band and Chasm was in the band and I was in the band, we just simply got Prairie, the drummer, <laughs> to learn, you know, 10 Utopia songs, and then we were our own opening act for the tour. Mm. And that was something that was pretty thrilling for a lot of the audience because many of them came to the music after Utopia had kind of like finished touring. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was an opportunity for them to get, a, you know, not really a Utopia show, but some sort of, a, you know, a little taste of it. Uh, in any case, Roger has um, gone back to his previous gig, which doesn't involve touring. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and he essentially, you know, it was great that he could make it out, but he can't get constant leave of absence for his regular job to go out and play anytime he wants. So um, we um, did a few more shows, another four shows in California. And for that, we um, contacted Ralph Shuckett, who was actually in the original Utopia and actually played on A Wizard of True Star. Yeah. Um, but we weren't going to do the Utopia thing anymore. <laughs> so instead, we opened the show with um, a set of Robert Johnson songs. So that's what that's how we'll be opening the show when we get to um, when we get to London. We don't talk so much about the opening act. It's not really what we're featuring, and we don't want to distract people from you know the meat of the show, which act, which is. Um, the theatricalization of the Wizard album. Yes. Now let's talk a bit more about that. This is happening in February in London, and it's the album that was first released in 1973. And it was, of its time, it was trailblazing in terms of uh, blending sort of progressive pop rock influences. And all these elements have actually come into your music subsequently. You know, that they're always there in, in some form, even in, on the recent albums. Now, what, Todd, then, were the motivations to actually perform this album again? This particular album? It actually, you know, came out of England. When we were, um, I guess it's a, about a year and some months ago, I guess we were there in November of um, 2008. And um, I was having dinner with our, uh, with our British promoter, and he came up with the suggestion based on the fact that um, there was a uh, a cater of younger artists, mostly sort of synthesizer artists, mixologists, electronica, and that sort of thing, who had discovered the record and were actually citing it and going so far as to sample it and put it in their own records. A band called Hot Chip used a big sample from one of the records and uh, had a um, YouTube video that featured it, stuff like that. So he thought it would be a great way to introduce a younger audience to me as an artist by doing a showcase of that record. He could tie it into a, you know, a movement in music that was contemporary. And we talked about what kind of form it might take and when we might do it, and then 
word of that got back to the U.S. and all, and a bunch of U.S. fans decided that they didn't want to have to go to England to see this, <laughs> and so they um, actually promoted the shows themselves. And most of the shows that we've done of uh, of the uh, Wizard album have been promoted by not by regular concert promoters, but by a you know kind of an inside group of of fans who've taken on that responsibility. So. Um, it really came about in a, in a kind of organic manner, and once the you know the bottom line criteria were met, you know once the the, the cost of mounting it could be defrayed, you know, and once all of the other aspects of the you know of the promote of the promotion of the shows were um, were secured, then I didn't have an excuse for not doing it. <laughs> I had to devise a way to pull it off, and from that point on, then I, I came up with the, essentially the theatricalization scheme and all the other aspects. Get ready to rock radio. I'm right in saying it wasn't really a concept album. It was essentially an anti-concept album. You know, the idea was that um, people had not rethought the actual form factor, or most musicians, the most artists had not rethought um, what was possible when um, music started moving from, first of all, 78s to 45s, and then 45s to LPs, and then eventually, of course, years later to CDs. Mm-hmm. But each one of these was an increase in the amount of programming that could be fit on a commensurately sized piece of plastic. And, um, and most artist myself included even though I you know didn't have like a long long history of singles and things like that most artists were recording three minute songs and collecting a dozen of those together to make an album and the songs were three minutes because that's how big a 45 was a lot of people don't you know don't put two and two together but why are songs all three minutes long well, it may have something to do with human psychology, <laughs> but it also may have to do with the fact that that's kind of the optimal amount of music that a 45 RPM record would hold. And then when everything moved to the LP, the so-called long player, well, classical music took advantage of it, but pop music continued to go on in three-minute chunks. And it was some time around, you know, was it a true star that, you know, I was trying to First of all, individualize myself as an artist. I was being too, I was being compared to other artists too much, and I didn't like that. You know, I didn't want to be simply. Well, if we can't get Carol King, we'll get this guy. <laughs> I wanted to be irreplaceable, so um, I started looking for you know different avenues, musical avenues to explore. Part of that whole thing was the realization that. For most pop musicians, they, and with a few exceptions, they weren't looking at that at the LP in terms of what you know kind of potential it had. They were still thinking in three-minute chunks, and um, and progressive rock was just starting to happen, and so songs were getting longer. But I figured, why pay attention at all to the length of the music? Just make the music until you know until another idea comes along. <laughs> and it's completely left turn into that. You know, it doesn't have to have any sort of you know real continuity to it. 
just you know capture as much sound as you can and just figure out some sort of you know some sort of flow or order to put it in you know that conveys uh, a, a sort of an energy you know not necessarily specific ideas but a whole sort of a way of hearing things and a um, a kind of like a completely free and loose style neutral way of looking at what kind of music could go on the record and whether it had to be music at all whether it could just be sounds um, so every once in a while a record laps into soundscapes that don't necessarily have a musical structure to them and then put it out to the dismay of, uh, of a lot of people. <laughs> now, now, I was going to ask you, what was the reaction of the, uh, the, the record label then when you delivered that album, Todd? Well, it's funny. There, was, you know, there, were, there were two distinct reactions. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, there was uh, the, you know, the staff that you know, had to actually you know, do the work of a record label and you know, call up radio stations to try and convince them to play songs and things like that. And you know, it's the business of selling records, essentially. <laughs> and the problem was that I had, you know, it wasn't so much that I, you know, had confounded that as that the previous record, something anything, had opened so many doors and created so many opportunities, presumably for me, but also for the people at the label, because it made it so much easier for them to go to the radio and say, hey, we got a new Todd Rundgren record, you know, this will be like hit record number four or something. Instead, I gave them a record with not, no singles on it at all, <laughs> and nothing they could take to radio to sell. Mm. And so they were completely flummoxed and, you know, disconcerted. Um, the critical response was, what the fuck? You know, this guy has taken too many drugs, you know, completely. The next thing you know, it's going to be Sid Barrett, you know, and he'll be in the hospital somewhere. At the same time, you know, the package wouldn't have been what it was without the encouragement of Albert Grossman, who, while he, you know, while it essentially was his label, he formed the label, and mm -hmm. it was supposedly his vision behind the label, he didn't do the day-to-day -day work, you know. He, you know, he looked at it as a place, you know, if he found an artist that he liked, it was a place to get their records released, you know. To, you know, he wouldn't have to go to some other label. He could release them himself. And um, he was amused by the whole thing, you know. He had lived through Dylan's transition from acoustic to electric artist and the whole furor that went with that. And I think he, like, enjoyed that. And um, and so he was sort of enjoying the fact that I had, you know, upset the apple cart um, in some sort of musical way by releasing this record. And so he was the one that actually encouraged the, you know, the die cut, the package. You know, I, I would uh, have liked to have had that done, but I couldn't insist on it. But he went for it. He went for the things that were stuffed in the sleeve, like the little poem by Patti Smith and the postcard that people sent back, uh, which was kind of a brilliant idea because it was a way of building a mailing list. And so that was his idea. I, don't, I never had those sort of marketing-oriented ideas. And so he actually sort of encouraged it. And the record didn't really, you know, there was some follow-up sales, but it didn't sell anything like something anything did at the time. But it was, 
a record for a certain audience. A certain audience really fell for it, <laughs> mm. and um, and that again, you know, the word of mouth of that, and also the fact that a significant portion of that audience uh, either was or would be musicians themselves, kind of um, created this you know soft spot for the record that lasted. Um, forever and it the the time period and what happened when the record came out created these this distinct schism in my audience that um, there were people who kind of stopped listening after something anything and if they see my name and show up at a show they expect me to do everything from something anything yeah yeah I can see that mistakenly. yeah <laughs> but uh, and usually they never buy another concert ticket after that and then there are the ones who kind of survived the transition or came in, came on board after a Wizard of True Star. And for them, that's the beginning of my career. Get ready to rock radio. It's like the beginning of, um, I think I'm right in saying, Utopia, isn't it? Because it featured some of the musicians. And of course, you stretched the progressive elements, didn't you, really, with Utopia? So that would have given you a whole new audience. Yeah, yeah. The, you could say the birth of uh, Utopia. Yeah. Made something of a commitment to, to so-called progressive music, and um, and it was kind of the milieu as well at the time. You know, it was uh, a strange record for me, but people forget that you know while on one hand there were the highly successful singer-songwriters, you know, music was becoming uh, more of a personal thing because a lot of it up until the Beatles um, saw, there were songwriters <laughs> singers songwriters were usually um, unattractive people <laughs> 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 so they would find somebody attractive to you know sing their material but you know the expectations changed after the Beatles after that everyone was expected to write their own material and things went you know a couple of different ways in that regard in one regard, people continued to write pop songs that became pop stylists and pop craftsmen, but they, you know, they wrote the songs themselves. It was Carole King and, and um, James Taylor and Elton John and all of these, you know, hmm. a whole, you know, kind of class of highly successful singer-songwriters. Then there was the whole progressive rock movement, which involved, um, Oh, you know, bands like Genesis and Yes and uh, and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and ultimately Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return for to Forever, and you know the whole um, what they called fusion movement. And Utopia, the first the initial versions of it were born in that cauldron. And uh, essentially, I what I was what I was ultimately trying to accomplish, I guess, was a more clear division of of, um, of styles in my own music. In other words, all of my progressive rock leanings I would expend on Utopia, and all of my singer-songwriter leanings I would expend on my own records. And uh, by the time I got to a, a, an album like um, Hermit of Mikalo, then we've got a, you know, a nice, concise album of, of Popish songs, paired up with, uh, I guess, around that period would be rock or you know, <laughs> some of the, you know, some still some of the earlier and very progressive 
um, Utopia Records. And um, I hope that that would, you know, that would give the audience a more clear choice. And so they could say, okay, I like the progressive aspects and, you know, and the guitar noodling and stuff like that. Buy Utopia Records for that. But I also like the, you know, the personal Todd Rundgren, you know, um, you know, emotional, insightful, whatever it is, thing that people like about my, you know, more personal songwriting. And then they could buy my solo records for that. And then I went to hell anyway. Utopia started writing pop songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but I think what's happened also, um, coming back to the last decade, I think this is where... It is quite exciting in, in the sense that I think you probably have got out to a new audience with the latest albums. And I think these um, the, the, the last studio albums, I'm talking Liars and um, Arena, you know, they, they obviously encompass a lot of these earlier influences anyway. And I, I would presume now, Todd, you don't feel any need to go any different direction because it's all there in place, isn't it, really, for people to discover um, and you're continuing to have those you know, those influences go on, really, in in the in the current albums, you know. Um, well, there certainly is enough there that if you've never heard any of it before, it'll take you a good long time to get through it. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, and, and ideally, you are forewarned that it's going to cover you know a lot of the map. It's not that I'm without musical horizons to explore. Um, but I think some of them are um, maybe old, old ideas that I never got to exploit. I did get to uh, write a musical for the public theater, and that was something that I had always wanted to do, and um, thought that that would become a significant part of my work. Uh, unfortunately, Joseph Papp, who was sort of my, my mentor there, um, got cancer and died, and then mm. the whole agenda changed a little bit. But after I had written a musical for them, he wanted me to continue to write for the public theater and wanted me to write an opera for them, and never got around to that. So somewhere out there, there's the opera. There's the Todd Rundgren opera, yeah. Because yeah. you mentioned for the, just going back to the um, stage production for A Wizard, A True Star, you mentioned uh, something about you've had to visualize it and... Uh, make it theatrical, I think you were saying, really. Mm -hmm. um, so we can expect full stage show with, I mean, you, you know, whatever concepts you've brought to this piece. It's going to be quite yeah. a well, quite you know, a spectacle. It's, uh, it's still, of course, limited by whatever our, you know, our budget. This is not charity. <laughs> you know, uh, in other words, we don't have the... Uh, we don't have the unicycle troop, you know, or the train monkeys. Twelve costume changes in an hour. Oh, Christ, <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, part of it, it's, um, you know, when you're devising a show like this, you know, a lot of uh, kind of logistical factors that you have to take into consideration, like the show has to be moved in and set up in less than a day. It can't take a week to put the show on, so uh, some things, you know, have to be, uh, some things you might like to do, you know, um, you have to kind of... Um, perhaps put aside. We'd love to have, you know, the big industrial sized lasers, but those require extensive permitting process and extra personnel, you know, like mm. operators for what essentially is an effect you use once or twice during the show. Mm. And if we were U two, 
you know, we wouldn't blink an eye. You know, it's, uh, you know, you two, they take a small city, you know, for a show. So adding one person to, you know, to manage uh, strobe lights is not a big deal for them. So I discovered that, the, you know, the biggest bang for the buck is, in this particular instance, you know, the, the costume changes and the way that they uh, theatricalize each of the each of the musical bits. In other words, I'm uh, I'm not just th- we're not just standing there playing the record. I am a character for each song. There's a historical aspect to it, and in, in that, even though I don't have the body that I had <laughs> in 1973, um, we're still trying to put some of those costumes on it. You know, because so many people you know, who have an interest in this record, never saw it performed. While we performed parts of it, we never performed the whole thing. We're doing it now. So in a way, it's, um, I think, you know, the expectation is that this is more than simply an exhibition. This is intended to be a transportive experience. (laughs) Back to a time when, you know, when the approach to, you know, a, a, a musical show was, inherently more theatrical as ever todd it's been really fantastic talking to you i mean you know it's, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in a lot more time than i expected really so we're grateful for that and uh, uh, no problem yeah, uh, i like to say once i get going ah uh, yeah and now and, and best of luck for the show in london uh, in february terrific we'll see you there